Welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and central figure in a fantastical world beyond imagination, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm film scholar having the Wiggins, Noelle LaCroix. And we're here today to talk about Normal Again, the 17th episode of season six. Normal Again aired on March 12th, 2002, and was written by Diego Gutierrez and directed by Rick Rosenthal. Still Pretty is a fully spoiled, full-spectrum Buffy podcast, so if you haven't seen all the show, go take care of that, and we'll never stop coming through. They're probably just friends. I press my lips against my friends all the time. Let's go on patrol. In Normal Again, Buffy finds the new nerd lair and Andrew sends a demon after her that stabs her with a bone spur, and suddenly, she's in a mental ward in a hospital getting a shot in the arm from orderlies. When she wakes up later in an alley, she clearly feels weird. At UC Sunnydale, Willow is practicing her makeup speech to Tara when she sees Tara greeting another woman with a very warm hello, and Willow books it out of there. At work, Buffy's distracted, flashing in and out of the mental ward to end up back at Double Meat Palace. At home, Willow wallows over Tara for a while until Xander comes home. He's looking for Anya, but no one knows where she is. I screwed up real bad. Later, while on patrol in the graveyard, Buffy bumps into Spike, who asks about the wedding. She tells him that Xander left Anya at the altar. Xander and Spike start arguing, and Buffy bends over, confused. She wakes up back in the mental institution, and the doctor tells her that she's been there for the past six years. Back in the graveyard, Willow and Xander tend to Buffy, but Buffy flashes back to the hospital, where she sees Joyce and Hank. She starts to cry and flashes back to the graveyard, where Xander and Willow walk her back home. A little ice on the back of her neck. She likes that. At home, Buffy tells the gang about the demon and the hallucinations. Willow jumps up, ready to research, when Buffy flashes into the hospital again. There, the doctor explains her condition, where she's got an intricate delusion in which she's a central figure in a supernatural world. But now, that world is starting to fall apart, and it doesn't seem as fantastical as it once did. I used to create these grand villains to battle against. And now what is it? Just ordinary students you went to high school with. No gods or monsters. Just three pathetic little men who like playing with toys. At the lair, Jonathan's getting paranoid that Andrew and Warren are teaming up against him. At home, Willow figured out what the demon was, and its stinger carries the antidote to the poison. Buffy says it's more than the demon. She hasn't felt right for a while. Willow tries to convince her that she's not in an institution, but Buffy says she was for a while. When she saw her first vampire, her parents sent her to a clinic. What if I'm still there? What if I left that clinic. Xander and Spike go out hunting to find the demon. Spike's annoyed that Buffy thinks they're all part of her delusions. They come upon the demon and Spike fights it while Xander shoots it with tranks. At home, Dawn cares for Buffy, who's distracted and running a fever. Buffy flashes back and forth between Dawn and Joyce and Hank, who tell her she doesn't have a sister. When she flashes back, Dawn is crying. It's your ideal reality, and I'm not even a part of it. Spike and Xander bring the demon alive to the basement, where Willow breaks off its stabby little bone spur and makes the antidote. She gives it to Buffy to drink and then leaves Spike to watch over her. Spike takes that opportunity to lecture Buffy on her martyr complex and then leaves. Buffy is about to drink, but then stops herself, pours the drink into the garbage, and flashes back to the hospital. I want to be healthy again. What do I have to do? 
Buffy tells Hank and Joyce that she wants to get better and go home. The doctor then instructs her to kill her friends in order to come home. She flashes into the Summers home and talks to Willow. A little while later, Xander comes back and finds Buffy doing the dishes. She hits him in the face with a frying pan and throws him into the basement where he sees Willow tied up and looking worried. On the other side of the basement, the demon is struggling against its chains. Buffy goes back into the house and locks the basement door, then goes upstairs to get Dawn, who is packing to go over to Janice's. Buffy tries to grab her and Dawn runs away, trying to talk sense to her. So it's Maria, a sick girl in an institution. Don't, please listen to me. Some kind of supergirl, chosen to fight demons and save the world. That's ridiculous. Buffy overpowers Dawn and tapes her mouth shut, then drags her down to the basement. In the hospital universe, Joyce, Hank, and the doctor encourage Buffy to take her time and kill her friends as slowly as she needs to. In the basement, Buffy releases the demon on Xander, Willow, and Dawn. It attacks them, and Buffy curls up under the stairs. In the hospital, Buffy curls up in the corner. At the house, Tara comes in and finds everyone in the basement. She shoots magic at the demon to fight him. Buffy watches as the demon attacks Dawn and knocks Willow out. In the hospital, Joyce tells Buffy she's strong. Buffy says she's right, and then says goodbye. In the basement, Buffy gets up and fights the demon, killing it. She tells everyone she's sorry and asks for the antidote. Then, at the hospital... I'm afraid we lost her. All right, Noelle, so here we are with normal again. You're getting to the part of season six where we got to start ramping this shit up, right? No more time <laughs> to just kind of dick around here. So what do you think of this episode? I have been looking forward to this one. <laughs> I love a story where we don't know what's literally true. <laughs> I do. I love yeah. a story where we don't know what's literally true. I uh -huh. especially love a story where... While it's fun to speculate about what might be literally true, it doesn't actually matter what's literally true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because what matters is our experience of the story. So I'm here for this one. I love that. What is so funny about this episode for me is that I hate I hate stories where I don't know what is actually true. A lot of that has to go with upbringing, you know, with a parent who liked to, you know, meld reality around whatever actually pleased her. And, you know, whatever. That's another discussion for me and my therapist. But the point is, having grown up in that kind of an environment, I like to know what actual reality is. I like to have something I can put my back up against. Um, and this is absolutely another one of those episodes that I love what it does. I love what it accomplishes. We just went through this with Hell's Bells. Like, I love what Hell's Bells accomplishes in that. It gives Anya her freedom. Um, I love what this episode does, that it forces Buffy to make a solid choice. And we all know that the thing that matters with characters is the choices that they make, right? So um, I love that we have her making an absolute choice, that we know what it is that she wants, um, which is a really big turning point for Buffy. I mean, this is the most pivotal episode of the season for Buffy. This is where she decides she, you know, she didn't choose to come back from the dead, but she's choosing to stay there now and I really really love that um, so I mean that's really nice like I like all of that um, but this actually presents to me like a very solid kind of Twilight Zone episode it reads like a sci-fi short story where in the end we get this final moment that pulls everything together so that we actually do know what the real reality is 
Although, according to that, the real reality is that Buffy is actually in a mental institution. Vampires aren't real and all of this stuff, right? Um, so I don't know. Though? I think that you kind of, well, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's how that's how I would read the text coming down on that. But you've got some other kind of uh, ideas about that. Oh, I have right? many. I have many, many ideas about this. Um, <laughs> I like it. I like it. I want you to be right because I don't like my read. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and that's isn't that like the fun of doing this kind of work? Really, is yeah. that it's like, well, I get to read this the way I want to read this. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, and I mean, that's the thing is that there is a lot of interpretation work to be. I mean, that's what reading is, you know. And when we say read, of course, I think everybody who listens to this probably already knows this because I've said it a million times. But reading is something that you do when you interpret the work, whether that is through the the eyes or the ears or video game playing or whatever. You are reading that narrative when you are deciding what it means. So, um, so that's what we mean when we say reading. Um, so I love that that your read on that is different because my read on that is that the text is actually saying that that is the real world because Buffy isn't even really present for that. Um, you know, this is her parents grieving the loss of their baby girl in this mental institution, you know. Um, but I do find it really interesting, though, that we do have this sense of like the quote unquote real world. Mm -hmm. Like what is real? What is reality? And once you start asking those questions, I mean, man, it falls apart like Gossamer, you know. Um, but I like that this season of Buffy deals with a lot of mundane kind of, you know, quote unquote real world situations. We even have the doctor saying like, you know, it's not gods, it's not monsters, it's three pathetic little men, yep. right? Um, so I love that. And having an episode at this point in this season that is reframing reality to something that could be part of the quote unquote real world. I think it's a really interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this this episode is about what is real and what is not. Right. Yeah. And mm -hmm. when we it's fun when we talk about what a story is about. Yeah. Like just deconstructing that idea mm -hmm. is fascinating. I think in in the context of the discussion of this episode because like when we ask what a story is about we might be asking mm -hmm. about the action the setting who's involved right so mm -hmm. it's about marianne and wanda who are the best of friends all through their high school days and how they kill <laughs> wanda's abusive husband earl and get away with it you know like yeah it that that's what the story is about but mm -hmm. if we're asking what something is about we might also be asking about the questions it raises in us about our own humanity um Ooh. you know like what human experiences does this story speak to yeah you know no big deal right <laughs> like chill really really MBD. chill it's fine yeah it's fine <laughs> um you know especially with this particular episode of television um mm -hmm. normal again really strikes me as being about a lot of things it's about reality mm -hmm. As you mentioned, what is real and what is not? What counts, mm -hmm. you know, quote unquote, what yeah. counts as real? Right. Um, in one of her memoirs, Carrie Fisher deconstructs the idea of the phrase real life, as in mm -hmm. what is she like in real life, as though that were a place or a state you could be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I love that question of what even is, quote unquote, real life anyway. Mm -hmm. But I like it most in the context of film, television, and storytelling. So Normal Again is very much about our relationship, season six, mm -hmm. relationship season, very with nice. stories and storytelling. 
Buffy herself questions her reality as the Slayer because which one sounds more real? A girl in a mental institution or a supergirl? Mm-hmm. We see the trio doing things Buffy doesn't know about. We see Willow prepping to talk to Tara. These are things that Buffy hasn't seen and doesn't know about, suggesting one of two things. To me, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> the institutionalized Buffy is really just a product of the demon stabby effect. Or, or maybe even, or slash and, mm-hmm. <laughs> Buffy's Supergirl delusion is our delusion. Re- oh, dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> regardless of what yeah. real life is, regardless mm-hmm. of what, quote unquote, real life is for Buffy and for us, an audience, mm-hmm. we have chosen the Supergirl narrative, literally. In the sense that this is the show we're watching right now. <laughs> and if you're confused, right, that, that's totally cool, right? This is all very postmodern. <laughs> I love it. That's some ace deconstruction, though. I mean. I love that. Yeah. It's it's funny because it, it struck me as I'm watching this. I'm going, okay, this episode is doing a thing, right? Mm-hmm. In the way that a lot of episodes of this show do a thing. Right. But one of the things that it seems to be doing is talking about itself as a television show, which I find fascinating. Uh-huh. I mean, I yeah. love it when Dr. Delusion starts critiquing the insertion of Dawn mm-hmm. into the narrative and the decision <laughs> to make the season's big bad three guys from Buffy's right. high school who like toys. <laughs> That's the moment when I, as an audience member, start feeling kind of hostile toward the idea that the mental, in- <laughs> the mental institution is actual reality because like how dare you sir (laughs) if you're that critical of the show don't watch my dude like you know some of us are here for the fantasy it's fine and when Buffy is trying to escape Sunnydale by knocking her friends out Xander tells her I've been part of the Buffy obsession before getting Mm -hmm. whacked with a frying pan and of course he's talking (laughs) about Spike But the phrase Uh Buffy obsession speaks to television fandom as much as it does to romantic infatuation. Oh, my God. I love the meta of this. It's so meta. It's so meta. It is very meta. Yeah. And I I also see this audience narrative relationship in the final interaction between Buffy and Joyce. Mm -hmm. It gets a little bit muddled because there's a lot of energy in that scene between them. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot at stake. Um, Mm -hmm. Joyce is giving Buffy a maternal pep talk that is just next level. But Mm -hmm. folded into it is Joyce's belief in the inherent magic in Buffy. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's the audience clapping for Tinkerbell to bring her back to life. (laughs) I love that. I love that. I do believe, and I I have this in my notes, that, um, that Joyce's speech is actually telling Buffy to stay. You know, that there's something in Joyce or whatever is representing Joyce, if it's a delusion, if it's Buffy's sense of Joyce, or if somehow Joyce's spirit is able to speak to Buffy through that. I love that read. I love that read. And I actually, it it ties in nicely with a kind of um, gendered look at this postmodern take of this episode. Uh Um, Uh Uh-huh. You know, because it's it's two narratives, essentially, yes. right? It's Sunnydale mm-hmm. and the institution. Mm-hmm. And both of those narratives are shaped by men. Mm-hmm. In Sunnydale, we're looking 
at the way mundane men use unearned and stolen power to make extraordinary women doubt themselves and their abilities. <laughs> no big deal, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. No big deal. Right. Uh-huh. Super chill. And I say yeah. stolen because Andrew summons the demon with a quote unquote primitive instrument that we then pan down to reveal a shit you not an issue of National Geographic lying on the floor. Mm-hmm. So let's not forget that when we're talking about patriarchy and we're talking about violent masculinity, we're talking about white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Well, and stolen power, power stolen from other cultures, which is what they're pointing to. Right. Yes. You know, it's yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not even. Oh, it's it's so layered. And it's one mm-hmm. of those things that it's one of those moments that I don't think is meant in the show to be a critique of. Mm hmm you know, colonization or settler culture or, you know, the the inherent um, enmeshed nature of patriarchy right. and white supremacy. But it's there. Mm-hmm. Like it did a thing. Well, that's terroir, though. Yeah. Right. Because it's there in our culture. So it gets in the story. But somebody... Whether they, it's not there as a critique. It's there uncritiqued, you know, but it it's present. But somebody yeah. put that National Geographic there, you know, somebody like did that yes, they did. it's uh it's yes, I, it is did. an example <laughs> i mean this is this is terroir adjacent right it's like yeah. you're you're mm-hmm. not saying what i what you meant to say or you're not saying what i think you're saying you keep using mm-hmm. that word i do not think it means what you think it means <laughs> anyway anyway mm-hmm. that's a bummer so that you know that's just a bummer but also like fair point um mm-hmm. so that's you know that's sunnydale really, really toxically masculine in ways that we have discussed and will continue to discuss. And then the institution is also very male Mm -hmm. with the nurses who try to restrain Buffy and the doctor who leads the conversation being very masculine, not only in appearance, but in behavior. Mm -hmm. There's a very domineering masculinity about the institution. Yeah. And the thing that makes them lose Buffy, as the doctor puts it in a really interesting way at the end. Yeah. Is that Joyce talks to her. Mm -hmm. So in both cases, men are the sowers of doubt in Buffy. Mm -hmm. And women are the saviors. Willow makes the antidote. Not with magic, thank you very much. Although, once again, I'm not sure that's something to celebrate. (laughs) And Tara saves the day. I cannot express yes. to you my relief, even rewatching, uh-huh. even even the second and third time through, you know, for for mm-hmm. this podcast, watch and Tara shows up, comes through the door. I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> it's just this yes. full body relief. Um, mm-hmm. But if we want to get all, you know, zoomed out in cultural studies, Ph.D. about it, what mm-hmm. are we saying about audiences and narratives? Mm-hmm. I don't want to oversimplify it. But I see a link to the idea that the Supergirl narrative is especially potent for feminine of center people. Mm-hmm. Willow and Joyce are both deeply invested in helping Buffy. But it's Joyce's acknowledging and affirming the world of strength in Buffy's heart, Buffy's love for her friends, that helps Buffy choose to re-inhabit herself in Sunnydale. Mm-hmm. And then she literally stands up, which is just great. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it so much. And I love how how deeply you're going into the meta of this, you know, and like what it says about the nature of stories and also like, you know, 
what happens in our stories, things in our culture get in our stories, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I absolutely love that read. Um, yeah, I find it, um, I find this episode trying in a lot of ways because I don't like that questionable reality. Like what is all of this? Mm -hmm. I want to have an answer for like what some of this is. And I find myself almost always failing in this episode um, because at the end, I feel like the text just rubber stamps that that is actual reality, you know, but at the same time, you know, I, I do think, and I've got um, a reference to the text uh, later on talking about Buffy, um, but I do think that Joyce is the one that releases her. And I love this idea of that feminine that feminine versus masculine read, you know, where feminine, the feminine center people are the heroes, right? Well, and that they're the ones who see feminine power as mm -hmm. important. You know, I mean, how yeah. many, how many traits get called positive in masculine of center people and negative and feminine of center people? Like mm -hmm. it's, yeah, we're kind of pathological about it in a lot of ways that, mm -hmm. you know, not to be all gender binary about it, but like if a man does it, it's totally fine. But if a woman does it, well, that's mm -hmm. not okay. And she must be punished. So right. I, I don't know. I see, I see potential for that read of Buffy's power mm -hmm. as well in this. Yeah, well, I, I really like that. And we do see that in those institutional um, scenes where this man who is running, this doctor who is running the show, right, you know, who is telling them exactly how it all is, um, is very much defining the narrative. And then that gets into, like, the power of narrative and what is reality and that reality is in narrative what we believe reality is. And when we let people tell us what our reality is, then we give up a huge amount of our power. You know, you choose, you need to choose your reality very, very carefully mm -hmm. um, because what you live in is actually to a great deal, like a great extent, your choice. You know, so you look at the world around you, you look at the evidence around you, the, the reality-based evidence or whatever, and you pull the meaning from that. You know, story is just a series of events. Narrative is what it means. Mm -hmm. So when, so right in this scenes, in these scenes with the doctor, the doctor is defining not the events, but the narrative. What does mm -hmm. it mean? Yeah. You know, and I find that really interesting, especially when he's talking about the geek trio, you know, and he's like these three pathetic little men who like to play with toys. And now like all of your demons are not quite so magical, not quite so fantastical. You know, um, now everything is getting mundane and it's not as comforting as it used to be. Right. He's defining the meaning of all of that story for Buffy, you know, um, which I find really interesting. And then here we have like getting back into, you know, the story story world of it right um we have the geek trio who are back now you know we suddenly care about them again oh good um, <laughs> they're not doing much you know uh except fighting each other jonathan is clearly splitting off from you know the two and uh and andrew is falling further into warren's clutches you know of control so warren is actually doing a thing that is a well-known strategy for narcissists far and wide is triangulation right 
is that one's the favorite, one's the scapegoat, one's the golden child, right? And then you get them to hate each other. And by that, you become the central figure that they both turn to. When Jonathan's making his argument, he's not making it to Andrew, he's making it to Warren. So even within this trio that is supposed to be banded together to, you know, fight Buffy and get chicks, 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 or whatever, um, there is that splinter group inside. And the thing is, is that Warren's machinations are so textbook. Um, And when you see these personalities in the real world doing this work, it is almost like they have a playbook they work from because they do exactly these things. So I find that kind of interesting for what he's doing inside, you know, the, the geek trio itself. But as far as like Buffy goes, Buffy finds their lair. Andrew releases this demon how does he have any idea what's going to happen? How does he have any idea what that's going to do? This is another chaotic, um, you know, a, a plan from these guys. Their their plans are always chaos. Even in Dead Things, the fact that Dead Things worked out to actually make Buffy think for a minute that she killed Katrina um, is ridiculous. There's no reason why that should have worked. That this had this kind of impact on Buffy. There's no reason why that should have worked that way. You know, mm-hmm. um, and so he sends this demon that's going to, you know, create hallucinations in Buffy or whatever. Um, and it actually in the end, the effect is it makes Buffy stronger, you know, because, of course, it does. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's such it's such a chaotic plan. How do they know that that demon isn't going to just go inside and eat them? How do they know that it's going to have like it's such it's so chaotic and it drives me crazy. Um so we have these guys who hit their height of dangerous and dead things, you know, which was just horrifying. And now they're back to just being kind of like, I don't know, three dweebs in a trench coat, you know, <laughs> boys playing at men. Um, they are a fabulous representation of the destructive nature of unearned power, but like, eh, you know, and um, season six, I think more than any other, even more than than season four, although season four had a lot of this problem too, suffers from not having a strong, cohesive antagonist with its own goal that is understandable. And you see them going to achieve that goal that counters Buffy. You know, mm-hmm. we just have these dudes who cause a lot of trouble, but it's all chaotic. They're not building toward anything. You know, we had the master building toward his release from prison and taking over Sunnydale. We had Angelus building toward pulling the world into hell the mayor working toward the ascension glory working toward her escape everybody wanted something and they were pulling toward that thing and then Buffy was able to fight them but these guys are just you know whatever and in the end of the season we end up with Willow as the biggest baddest threat for two episodes Mm -hmm. right Um, so it's just the thing that holds a story together is the strength of that antagonist and we don't have a real strong sense of antagonism in this season so we tend to kind of like fly around this is you know the 17th episode um, in season Mm -hmm. 7 this is when things really have to start moving you know yeah we don't have any more time to dig around um so we really need to get that going and this i like the geek trio in a lot of ways i like what they say um you know about unearned power i like what they say about entitlement you know Mm -hmm. um there's a lot of stuff that i think that they're doing in here and the mundane world versus the fantastical world and what that means for buffy i think there's a lot of really interesting things happening um, in season six, but on a basic narrative level, it is kind of falling apart. Yeah, there's just not enough there there. I mean, I like mm-hmm. the way they fold into the mundanity of season mm-hmm. six, because, of course, if if 
mundane or I don't know, how do we want how do we want to discuss it? Like the adult world, you know, mm-hmm. bills and childcare and a job that you work because you need money to pay for yes. the bills and you know, you've got mm-hmm. a you know, you have someone who is dependent on you who you also have to make, you know, do their homework and do their chores. Like it's very it's super, super mundane. We've talked about this, but part of that mm-hmm. mundanity, I think for a you know, a a young woman or really, you know, a lot of people of marginalized genders is patriarchal hegemonic masculinity. Like it's on the one hand, uh, see, this is this is a huge bummer in a, you know, in the zoomed out sense, right? Of like, on the one hand, it is just pervasive and effective and everywhere to the point that it can be just kind of annoying. It's Mm -hmm. like, like, Buffy's, you know, douche nozzle co-worker who's like, mm, yeah. Machiavelli, zeitgeist, you know, it's like, <laughs> you're like, oh, come on. But at the same time, mm-hmm. these dudes have real power in the sense of, you know, a true ability to do damage, to mm-hmm. kill people, to, you know, do all kinds of harm left and right without thinking about it you know what did they think was gonna happen well they didn't and that's part of why it's scary but it i don't know it it folds into that mundanity in a way that is both terrifying and not terrifying (laughs) it's just it's terrifying not uh, not surprising yeah you know like like we like yeah of course this is and this like the combination of power and entitlement you know, Mm -hmm. that we get um, is incredibly destructive and it can be destructive without a plan. It doesn't need Mm -hmm. a plan because its power reaches so far. What they're able to do with very little reaches so far. And I think that that is like a really interesting like statement. I think that that the representation of real experiences is kind of dead on at the same time like just purely from a narrative standpoint it makes for a weak you know Mm -hmm. story it makes for a weak narrative um so you just you need to have a strong antagonist and we're just missing that here um but there are a lot of things about it that i that i really do like um one of the things that i really love in this episode is buffy you know um like i said before buffy making an active choice here is absolutely huge and this is the turning point in the season you know this is where buffy integrates making both sides of herself like the emotional side that loves this world and the people in it and the rational side that believes she should be quote-unquote normal she's integrating all into one which is you know part of a post-traumatic process at least that it was for me that was very much a big part of my post-traumatic process um was kind of pulling all of those sides of myself together that had splintered in the course of the trauma It is absolutely harrowing when she, (laughs) the thing that monsters are afraid of, becomes the monster, right? Hunting her friends, going through the house, making the speech, right? While she's stalking Dawn, you know? And I think the moment that Buffy is stalking Dawn in this episode, for me, is probably the most horrifying moment in the entire run of the series. Wow. Yeah, it's I think that's the good. scariest thing. It's mm-hmm. in addition. I mean, part of the reason that that works so well, you know, in addition to all of the character work that is mm-hmm. happening there, is they just they just nailed it with the direction yeah. there. They just yeah. they so nailed it. It's so good. And 
you know, I feel like I say it all the time, but I can't say it enough. Sarah Michelle Geller, y'all. Yeah. The work She's she amazing. does in this episode in particular, her face, the subtle shifts in her face. She's doing this thing when she's stalking Dawn. She's doing this thing mm-hmm. with her jaw where yeah. it's like her mouth is oddly relaxed in a way that is off-putting. It's so good. I hope, it's you not, know, yeah. I hope mm-hmm. my my actors out there have interesting <laughs> things to say about that because I notice these like subtle performance beats yeah. but I don't have you know that's not where my we need to get somebody is. with expertise in acting to talk about I what would... happens in this show because these people are amazing and in, they are so good and it's one of the things I think that made the show so mm-hmm. revolutionary part of the reason yeah. that we're still talking about it 20 years later is that these young actors did some really stellar oh, the performances stellar yeah. work yeah, just so, unbelievably good. Not to derail us too much, but yes, that no, that yeah. Buffy mm-hmm. stalking Dawn slowly mm-hmm. and deliberately. Oh, yeah, it's chilling. It's really, it really is chilling. So incredibly good. And then, like you know, we've we've teased this a little bit, but Joyce's speech at the end gives her the strength to let it all go and choose her friends. And I love what Joyce says. And if, if you actually look at the text of it. I think that Joyce is telling her to go back. I think she's telling her she's letting her release. You know, this is like that dream that you have of somebody that you're grieving who says you can let it go. It's okay. I'm okay. Right. Mm -hmm. This is what Joyce actually says. Buffy fight it. You're too good to give in. You can beat this thing. Be strong, baby, okay? I know you're afraid. I know the world feels like a hard place sometimes, but you've got people who love you. Your dad and I, we have all the faith in the world in you. We will always be with you. You've got a world of strength in your heart. I know you do. You just have to find it again. Believe in yourself, which is what Buffy has needed to hear throughout the entire run of season six since coming back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you're never going to convince me that Joyce isn't telling her to do exactly what she did, to choose exactly what she chose. She doesn't say, come back to me. Mm-hmm. She doesn't say, stay here with me. Mm-hmm. She says, we will always be with you, which is what somebody says when they're releasing you. I will always be with you, right? Yeah. You know, well, um, yeah. that's permission to let go, not a request to stay. Yeah, that is, that is, you can love this person, you know, as, as a reflection of the grieving process, right? Mm-hmm. Of Buffy grieving the loss of her mother. That is, oh, wow. That's, it's really powerful as an invitation mm-hmm. to love the memory of this person, you know, yeah. Joyce will always be with Buffy. That is mm-hmm. something that you say to someone who is mourning a death, right? She will yeah. always be with you. Will always be with you. I would I would be interested to know how many people who have lost someone that they loved have had some sort of a dream or vision or experience of that person mm-hmm. communi- somehow communicating to them you know, I will always exactly be with that. you. Exactly that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and that you've got to let it go. You've got to release this and live fully in the life that you have. Well, like you're allowed um, yeah. to because you have yeah. other things. You don't have to mm-hmm. stay. You don't have to stay in the grief. You don't have to stay mm-hmm. in the suffering. Like right. the suffering is real. But you can, you know, you can stand up. 
metaphorically. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then she actually does. Yeah. All right. So one of the other things, though, that I really I enjoyed, of course, because it's Spike. Right. Um, but I actually enjoyed it, like not because of Spike, but because of kind of like the greater narrative discussion that it opens up is Spike struggling to kind of find his place in Buffy's reality, like where he fits there now, you know? Yeah. Um, and he has this phrase that he says, and I think this is not the first time he says it. See, I figured it out. Right. You know that Spike is spending every single minute of every single day taking everything that has been said, everything that has happened between him and Buffy and trying to stitch it into a narrative. These are the words of somebody trying to figure out the narrative, not what happened, because what happened happened and everybody knows what happened, but what it means. Mm -hmm. Right. So narrative is not about a series of events. Like I said before, story is a series of events. Narrative is what it means. Right. And Spike's struggle with the narrative. You can't let yourself be happy. You would be happy with me right is presenting yet a third reality to Buffy that she just cannot deal with and because of his other reality that he is presenting and imposing on her and again when you're talking about men imposing narratives on the women in this story here we have this again right um, mm -hmm. she chooses for the moment the reality of the mental institution and Joyce and Hank not because she wants to be there, I think, but because she does not want to deal with Spike trying to tell her what it means anymore. Oh, yeah. Right? She's just had enough. Yeah. So Spike also just desperately wants to believe that Buffy can only be happy in the dark with him. But the ap actual opposite is true. She can only be happy in the light, which is a place where he cannot go. You know, mm. and the more confidently she walks toward the light, the more she departs from him. And he needs to hold on to these really thin narratives in order to feel like he has a place where she's going, which he clearly does not. Yeah. Well, there's this moment in that scene where he goes to walk toward her and he kind of like yes. flinches and steps back. Is that a, direct sunlight? Is it direct sunlight? That's how I read yep. it. And then I was like, wait, did I? miss something there's a beam of direct sunlight between them and she is actually sitting in sunlight that's right and he can't yeah yeah, yeah. i i have a lot of feelings about that interaction mm -hmm. between spike and buffy i i love i love the idea of spike as a reader of the narrative yes um mm -hmm. I, I mean, and we know that Spike also is a big fan of television, right? Yeah. So Spike Spike has often been our connection to television and how television mm -hmm. works, how story works, yes. if you will. He's the he's the how story works <laughs> mascot in a way. He's a narrator. Yeah. He is a narrator. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's it's fascinating to me that he says, you know, so he he has this big speech for her about being addicted to the misery and that prompts her in what I think is a very impulsive decision to mm -hmm. pour out the antidote, right? Yes. And to choose for the moment to be in the delusion. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's very, very interesting about his confronting of her prompts her to do this. And I don't quite know what I think about it. I have a lot of thoughts about it, but I kind of don't yeah. know what I think about it. Um, but I do think I think you're spot on that it's not it is not that Hank and Joyce and the institution are the preferred reality. Mm -hmm. I think it's this escape from in the moment from I cannot deal with one more thing. 
And Spike is the one more thing. Spike is absolutely is the so one more the one thing. more thing. It's like he, he is, is so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out. Absolutely. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> cannot cannot deal with you today. Exactly. Is a mood. Today is yeah, not your day, absolutely. sir. <laughs> not the day for me to deal with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um I also we've got some nice Willow and Tara stuff going on here. Um we open up with this false conflict. Willow's waiting at the school. She wants to talk to Tara. Tara steps out, kisses another girl on the cheek, you know, uh which is very chaste, right? Yeah, and it's and very it is sweet. one of these things. I talk about false conflict all the time, like where somebody gets upset and there's this whole big fight because of a misunderstanding, right? Misunderstanding secrets and lies create false conflict. Um, so we have this um, and it does present as false conflict, except for that it really isn't a source of, of conflict. Willow is not confronting Tara. She's not mad at Tara. She, we don't have the opportunity to go to, for Tara to say, oh, but that's my sister. Right. Like that stupid little uh, misunderstanding thing that we've seen um, enough to make it a cliche. Um, but Willow doesn't get mad at Tara. Like this presents as internal conflict for Willow, who is living into narrative realities, right? She is scared and insecure. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is afraid that what is the, like the event is the event. They kissed on the cheek. Right. But the narrative, what it means for Willow is Tara has moved on. She is no longer interested in me. Um, but even as she says that, she says, I know. I know. Right. Yeah. You know, we've all been there. Like, yeah. I know. Here's what it feels like. It's Here's the story that like... I'm telling myself. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So the narrative that she so again, we have like Willow in this little moment that actually isn't a huge part of this episode. We have Willow struggling with her own narrative as well. You know, these two dual narratives of what is she going to believe? Right. Um, And I find that interesting. We have Xander with his narrative of, yes, I left her at the altar, but I still want to date. Like, <laughs> What kind of reality are you living in, dude? Oh, sweetie. Oh, buddy. Um, Oh, Xander. Before we get before we get to sad, pathetic Xander, um, I love Willow in this episode. I love how capably she is able to research, work the problem, find the solution, brew the antidote, all without magic. Although, honestly, the difference to me between magic and chemistry is not much, Mm -hmm. right? You know what is it? uh, I always go to the Arthur C. Clarke sufficiently advanced technology presents as magic, right? Yeah. um, Yeah. And and the thing is, is that for me, like any science pretty much presents as magic. The fact that I am able to sit here and talk to you and see your face on a Zoom call when we're thousands of miles away. Right. It's fucking magic, dude. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm sure there's sciencey people and technologists who can exactly explain how all this happens and they made it happen and they're brilliant. I'm not taking anything away from them. But for me, magic. So when I look at Willow doing chemistry versus Willow doing magic, do I see a difference? Not much. Um, But she clearly knows the difference it's chemistry not magic she calls that out um bruise the antidote um we have this moment from buffy you always are you never stop coming through right you know which is which is really really nice um and so i love all of that from willow um what a rock she is how strong she is throughout this episode um and i really love in the end tara who has been damseled so many times. I believe that Tara's damsel count and Giles's knockout count are almost neck and neck at this point, you know. They need um, to sing another duet. Come they on. They need to like- sing a duet. <laughs> they really do. But here, everyone else is damseled. And who saves the day? Fucking Tara. Yes. I mm-hmm. love that moment. With I love it. Quick thinking, mm-hmm. calm, 
magic right Shooter at the magic. So good. So good. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah. yeah. No, it's it's really really great and I'm just so pleased with that, you know, cuz yeah. we damsel her way too much. Well, and another, you know, speaking of Willow and Tara, another reason mm-hmm. to be kind of irked by the false conflict, the oh, mm-hmm. you know, I kiss my friends on the cheek all the time stuff is Willow, so Willow sees this, has this mm-hmm. struggle about Tara yeah. has moved on and then doesn't do any magic about it like mm-hmm. you know we're just kind of calmly moving through mm-hmm. this recovery story for willow um you know she's very clear with xander about go to the magic box and get such and such herbs you yeah. know not for magic mm-hmm. we just need them as preservatives for the formula or whatever it's great it's great but it's mm-hmm. something something that willow brings up in her little practice speech to tara is oh mm-hmm. i'm magic free for insert number of days now like she's yeah. I, I don't know. There's something there, too, of Willow Willow being um, more secure, I guess, mm-hmm. in her recovery that she can see Tara maybe be with someone else, but not really, mm-hmm. but still feel kind of insecure about it and not turn to magic. like she's And process her feelings. Yeah, right? Yeah. We're talking about her feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're having the experience. Good yeah. stuff. It's it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, all right. So, like, now we have Xander. Speaking of right? feelings. Oh, my goodness. Baby. Speaking of feelings. <laughs> Xander. <laughs> like... Xander in this episode, I have I have very complicated feelings about Xander in this episode. For what? Like, he comes back from, you know, wherever he's been, right? He's talking about Anya. The magic box is closed. And I love this moment where he's like, the magic box is closed. And that's what put a chill through him because he knows how much she loves her work. Yep. And I actually kind of liked that understanding of her mm-hmm. and what's important to her, that if she gives up her work, then then what I did was really bad. Also, yes, what you did was really bad, Xander. Like, you know, what you did was bad. Um, but asking her to marry you in the first place when you're so terrible to her is also bad. So we'll just kind of let that go. Um but here we have Xander. We have this moment, like this deep emotional moment for him where he's back and he can't find Anya and he doesn't know what's going on. Um, and then we have this thing where Buffy's talking about the demon having poked her. And then Xander, Xander, Xander's the shit out of this. This is a season three Xander line, if ever I heard one. Yeah. And it's when you say poke, right? And it is a classic, like, ugh, Xander moment. We do see the look from Willow where she's like, Jesus, Xander, you know, um, all of that. I guess he's trying to be funny or whatever. I don't know. The whole thing. So irritating. And it reminds me of the Xander. Like, I, you know, anybody who's been through the whole Still Pretty Run knows how I struggle with my love of Xander. Because later years, Xander, like post-season four Xander, I like a lot more than the first three seasons of Xander. Although we do have bad moments all the way along the line. You know, Xander struggles to grow, right? Um, And... So we have this one little moment in this episode, which I hate, except (laughs) that when Buffy hits him in the face with the frying pan later in the episode, I always laugh. I always love it. And I always have this moment like, okay, yes, we may proceed now. I needed that little bit of hit him in the face with a frying pan just to say all that shit you did before not okay now i can forgive and move forward with xander i feel like this is a transitional moment for me with xander (laughs) i just needed him to get hit in the face just one just one time i will and i love this about the stories that we love right that there are these moments that it's like okay 
I don't know that this is great necessarily, but for me, it's great. And that is for wonderful. For me, it's great. Yeah. I, every single time I watch this episode when she hits him in the face with a frying pan, I laugh. I cannot help myself. Oh I always go, <laughs> there's something about it that is just really, it just feels like justice. And then I feel like I can move on. Because the thing is, like, I'm happy to forgive Xander. I've seen his family. I know what he comes from. Dude struggles. He means well, like he's really trying and he does grow and he becomes better. And that's the thing. Like, we all have bad behavior. I believe firmly in redemption. I want to be a better person tomorrow than I was today. That is always my goal. And I think that we should be allowed the space to grow and be better as humans and, and understand and have compassion for each other. But sometimes a a little smack in the face with a frying pan has an incredibly restorative effect. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I enjoyed that. I love Buffy's response when Xander mm. comes back mm-hmm. and he's he's clearly going through it. And yeah, I feel all the ways for him because, as you said, you know, we've seen where he comes from. Mm-hmm. We've seen, you know, we, we've yeah. seen what he's he's working with. And mm-hmm. he's trying in some ways and he needs to do a lot better in a lot of other ways. But when Buffy says, hey, we all screw up, it's mm-hmm. just so loving and lovely. And it feels yeah. like a moment of genuine, not not you're off the hook, Xander, but we love you. Like, we still mm-hmm. love you. You can screw up and yeah. you can still be loved by your friends. And it's little moments like that. I think it's so funny to me that you're like frying pan to the face and I'm like universal human compassion. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm all for universal human compassion. I have a lot of compassion, but and I don't I don't request the frying pan to the face. But when it happens, I I, I like it. No, I hear you. It's just hilarious (laughs) to me that for you, that moment is cathartic in a way that for me, who, you know, like, I would yeah. have been the first one with the frying pan to the face for Xander in previous seasons. I would have been like, that man yes. needs to be punched so hard. My punching arm is so twitchy right now. Exactly. That like, when it comes down to it, I'm like, oh, buddy, you just need a hug. Oh, <laughs> like, sweet baby. We're hilarious we what is what I'm with. saying. Yes. We're hilarious. I, know. I just- love us. We jump both sides of the fence. You'll be on one side, I'll be on the other, oh. then we'll just swap. It's awesome. We just I love do. It. You got well, I mean, I you, love you know, it. it's good for balance, right? You have to have like <laughs> one person on each side of the fence at all times. Something Absolutely. I don't know. Improves dexterity, all that there fence hopping. It's but good one for curb fence, appeal. One side of the fence that I continue to be on that I will always be on is Dawn is a fucking badass, right? Oh yeah. Um, you know, I love I love Dawn. I love where we're going with Dawn. Here we have in this episode, she's caring for Buffy, right? She's taking over the role of nurturer, you know, Um, she's hurt that she's not in Buffy's ideal reality. And we do have a little bit of that, you know, classic pissy dawn, you know, where I'm packing up, I'm going over to Janice's where they want me in their reality, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. We get a little bit of that, right? But once she sees that Buffy is really cracking under the strain of whatever this is, she fights for Buffy. She wants to reach Buffy. You know, she could run and maybe get away and maybe get out or whatever, jump out of the window or whatever, right? But she stays and tries to talk to Buffy and tries and like runs through the house. She's resourceful, you know, um, she's able to run and dodge, you know, which is amazing. Like just like I I love 
the way she fights. I love the way she's always in it, you know? And so Dawn for me is absolutely like a badass. Um, the only thing that like was so weird is this moment in the beginning of that, right? Where, um, where she's talking about, you know, we've got to fix your grades. We've got to fix the ceiling. And Dawn is like, yeah. And then she's like, and Willow's doing your chores. And Dawn's like, what? You know? Mm -hmm. And I'm also like, what? How did, mm -hmm. how did Willow doing her chores ever become a part of anything? Is this part of some kind of weird, is this the thing that makes Dawn realize that Buffy's not in actual reality or what the hell's going on? What that has to do with anything? We've never had a discussion of that before. I don't even know. Um, but uh, but aside from that, which was always kind of like a huh moment for me, um, I, I love kind of that interaction. And again, it is truly horrifying when Buffy is stalking Dawn. Um, and it's so heartbreaking. Um, I love it. I think it's really effective. I read the Willow's been doing your chores line as being about Buffy struggling with this parenting role that mm -hmm. she's in. Yeah. Because she is yeah. up against everything mm -hmm. at that moment. And one of the pressures on her mm -hmm. is trying to be a mother to this sister. Mm -hmm. And how do you, you know, how do you do both of those things at the same time? Right. And there's a lot of, you know, Buffy has a lot of, you know, worry, but also shame about yeah. not being able to, quote unquote, make Dawn fall in line, right? Dawn is mm -hmm. clearly struggling and Buffy uses that against herself like part of Buffy's struggle is that that the sister that she loves and wants to care for is struggling mm -hmm. so I read that as a kind of a you know you're down a rabbit hole of fear and self-doubt and what even is reality and I don't yeah. I'm not sure I want to be here anymore and mm -hmm. just it's you know it's another one of those things like this person yeah. that I'm supposed to be raising is mm -hmm. you know stealing and skipping school and not doing her chores mm -hmm. it's yeah. you know those those minor things that become major things when you're trying to build a home a loving relationship mm -hmm. to feel capable in yourself as a person yeah um mm -hmm. it's out of left field but i think it's meant to be i think it's meant to be part of buffy's mm -hmm. like not waffling but her overwhelm mm -hmm. Her yeah, overwhelm. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. I, I love a lot of Dawn in this episode, but I have this, I take real issue with her saying, it's your ideal reality and I'm not even a part of it. Yeah. Where did she get ideal from? That's the part that I, I don't. from her own insecurity. That's the part I don't like. I don't like yeah. that Buffy's mental health struggle is still about Dawn. Right. It sucks that mm -hmm. Buffy can't just have a breakdown and have a breakdown. It has to be. Yeah. There's there's I mean, it is a little bit of of narcissism in a way that I think teenagers are narcissistic. But, you know, like it was so hard for me when you <laughs> had a mental breakdown. Like, right. this, you yes. know, like that's mm -hmm. awful. That sucks. Mm -hmm. But the thing yeah. is, until Buffy starts stalking her friends and trying to i don't know kill them with a demon in the basement yeah like mm -hmm. she's not she's not cruel right. or unkind in her in her mental health mm -hmm. struggle she is going through she's experiencing mental illness and remaining kind and i don't i i don't like the way dawn is critical of her in that way 
Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I think you've got a point like, you know, yeah, teenage kids do tend to have a little bit of the narcissism like in them. That's something that kids have and they grow out of eventually with the best of circumstances. Um, at the same time, fiction is not answerable to reality, right? We've had that conversation quite a bit. So um, the value of this within, you know, this moment, I think, is that Dawn does make it about her. And then when she sees what Buffy's going through, when she sees how this is, and although you could argue, and I would say there's textual evidence for the argument that it remains about her, because it isn't until Buffy is a complete direct threat to her that mm. she suddenly makes it about Buffy, right? Yeah. You know? Well, yeah. she's she's angry at first when Buffy comes to her room. Yeah. She's like, mm -hmm. you know, ever hear of knocking or something like that. Yeah. And, and Buffy's... I'm going over to Janice's where they want me. Yeah. yeah. But then mm -hmm. Buffy, when Buffy starts to speak to her, you see the shift in Dawn and she says, are you yeah. okay? Like she's yeah. actually she concerned. She sees that it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that that's, um, you know, I think you're right. I think that that's not a great note for Dawn, you know, um, in this uh, in this moment. And that Dawn's ability to let this let Buffy struggle be about Buffy, mm -hmm. you know, um, is is nice when we get it. But we do have those pissy little moments at first that yeah. are not great and again it's age appropriate but i don't like it, it <laughs> is not answerable to reality once again um all right so uh, there was a mental health discussion that we need yeah. to have i'm gonna go ahead and let you run this okay <laughs> all right i mean we can't talk about this episode and not talk about mental yeah. health right mm -hmm. i mean I had a huge note in my notes that says, that's not how mental health works. Right. And, you know, I, I was about to get really salty about abnormal yes. psych in this episode, and I mm -hmm. still might. The day is young. Okay. Um, but I have an interesting thought that I want to run by you. Mm -hmm. So the horrendous depiction of mental health care is distressing. Yes. But it's also not, quote unquote, the real world. Right. So is it possible that the show is depicting an institution in film and television? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a little bit of circular reasoning, possibly, right? Like it mm -hmm. looks like mental health care, you know, it looks like a mental health care facility from television because it is a mental health care facility on television. Mm -hmm. But what I mean to say is this is a nod to the idea of the institution as being a delusion, Yes. Because the look and feel of it is informed by fiction. Mm -hmm. Similarly, right. many of us can fabricate a story of alien abduction that would feel consistent with a stranger's story of alien abduction because we know how those stories work. Right. Shout out to uh -huh. how story works. Thank you very much. <laughs> I mean, of course, there's a bigger conversation to be had here about mental health mm -hmm. and especially abnormal psych as it appears in film and television and how mm -hmm. damaging that can be. Culturally, yes. um, Willow references One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was hugely mm -hmm. popular, but also hugely problematic in terms of its impact on public perception of mental health care. So yes. I'm wondering how much, I mean, there's no way to know this really, but how much credit do you think we can give the show for, oh, this is definitely a delusion or this is definitely not Buffy's true reality because it doesn't look how an institution would look in quote unquote right. real life. Right. Well, then again, fiction not answerable to reality that often when fiction depicts something, it depicts how it feels right. rather than how it looks. So that is definitely that's a line 
you know, there's there's a spectrum there of argument that you can make. I love that idea that it looks like the televisual perception of mental health care, but it is not really what mental health care actually how it actually presents. Um, I think that that's really good. One of the big problems that we do have um, culturally and definitely that that shows up in our media um, is this very dismissive and otherizing uh, representation of people who struggle with mental health issues, right? You know, um, and uh, and so we do this otherizing. We do this whole, you know, we use um, otherizing words like crazy. We make otherizing jokes like, "Are you off your meds?" Um, you know, all of these things that that serve to further isolate anybody who is dealing with mental health and also discourage them from getting help Mm -hmm. for mental health issues, you know? Um, So it's, it's an incredibly damaging um, uh, perception of, of mental health and mental health care. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think I'm trying to think of an instance in film and television in which a mental health care worker has compassion and kindness and is any way in any way effective. Um, I think we have like some, like maybe the therapist from Tony Soprano, uh, although that was also, you know, a difficult relationship. Um, and, uh, yeah, like, I don't know, usually, I mean, Hannibal and Hannibal is a therapist, (laughs) you know? Um, so I think that there's, there's interesting uh, ways in which we have the depiction of not just the mentally ill, but also the people who care for the mentally, you know, um, yeah, it's 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 a really kind of difficult it's a difficult thing to unpack culturally um, the ways because as I'm saying mentally ill, I'm like, is that that's is that the phrasing I should use? Is that the I mean, like it's there's so much to unpack. Well, as someone with mental illness, I mean, mm-hmm. like even I don't know the words to use about things like I don't know, like this this pushes my wait a minute, I don't know about this abnormal psych depiction kind of buttons because, Mm -hmm. you know, especially, oh my God, this is, this is not, you know, this is not my area of expertise at all. But when the doctor clearly mine either (laughs) is like, yeah, (laughs) just to be clear, neither Lonnie nor Noel is a therapist or a licensed. (laughs) We're not, we're not really licensed to do anything except, I mean, I'm licensed to drive a car in Washington state. That's what I got. Um, But Especially when the doctor throws out the word schizophrenia, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, I'm out. Like, you can't. Nope, nope. You don't, you don't throw around schizophrenia and then not pay off. I don't know. I don't. Well, but if this is. You know, I, I, I think this is giving perhaps the intent of the episode a little more credit than is actually due. But if this is representing a, an understanding of mental health and mental health care through the lens of how it is depicted in our media, because that is all that Buffy has access to because she is not really in an institution. Mm. I think you can make that that argument um but but i think that what you know and, and we had a similar situation with like social workers uh yes. in yep. um and older and far away uh where our representation of these people who do really vital and important work in the communities are treated um as you know evil terrible people who do evil terrible things um all of that i i find you know from a cultural standpoint to be 
to be a real problem. At the same time, like I, I have not learned enough about this to feel like I can even talk about like, you know, I mean, I have mental illness too. I've had anxiety and depression my entire life. That's mental illness. Like I haven't gotten any help to it with it until recently. And I'll tell you something, my therapist fucking amazing. And I'm a lot better. I'm feeling a lot better because I got some help for it, you know, and the idea of taking the otherizing out of that, taking the stigma out of that, taking, you know, that that seeing a therapist is a is a normal rational thing to do the same way that if you broke your arm you would see a physician you know mm-hmm. um so anyway all of that to say it's complicated it's problematic if i said anything on which i need to be educated by all means feel free not your job to educate me but anybody who wants to it's always gratefully received uh, because i'm still kind of struggling with a lot of these things myself and and you know having been raised in a culture that views mental health this way um, it takes a while to kind of unpack all of those kind of knee-jerk things that you think are true which are not true once again here we are in narrative what is true what is reality exactly right exactly. i mean yeah, yeah. It gets, it's it's really, really complex when you start thinking about the, the power of belief in actually shaping what your experience of reality is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that gets a little it gets a little freaky. I'm not going to lie. Um, OK, so here we are now. We've had this whole discussion about normal again. Can we come down one side or the other? What actually happened? Right. Um, you know, what actually, actually happened according in this to episode? whom, you know, no, <laughs> but seriously, like, what do you think the text is saying? Like, I feel like at the end we have this text that says that, um, you know, that it ends on Joyce and Hank in a reality that exists without Buffy. Buffy is not does not seem to be present for that. So if this is her delusion. Then because we, we lost her. She's not with us anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, mm-hmm. so this is part of her delusion that she's not present for. Like that feels like this. They're saying that this is the actual reality and that Buffy the Vampire Slayer is all happening within her mind. That it is that the the world of the of Sunnydale is actually the real delusion. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find that kind of interesting. Um, and and that is a question for me. Um, so I don't know. Like, I, I, I feel like that final scene that final twilight zone coda right which is it is a classic twilight zone style sci-fi coda there at the end giving us the final cap to tell us what the actual reality is i feel like that's in, in the language of film and television that's what that does you know um what do you think well i think on the surface i think on the surface that is what it does but mm-hmm. also, this is within the context of an episode that is about a television show, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which actually brings me to my favorite part. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and skip yeah. right ahead. Let's do that. Because there's a segue here. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, because, all right, from a production standpoint, my favorite part is the Buffy locking everyone in the basement music. Yes. But mm-hmm. my real answer, so to speak. Yes. Is the coda, is mm-hmm. this last little snippet of a scene that we get. And it used to be my favorite part because it felt tricky. It felt yeah. like the show being cheeky with us. Is it all in her mind? It mm-hmm. could be because that's just where we're going to leave it and we're not going to answer it, you know, right. on and on and on. But now it's my favorite part because it speaks to the parts of ourselves that we leave behind as we grow and change and own our talents and abilities and power. Mm -hmm. So I think 
I think that the institution, if I had to come down on a side of like what mm-hmm. is real, yeah, this is still we are still in Buffy's mind mm-hmm. in that coda as we pull away in the same way that you can be in a dream or a vision and be looking yeah. at yourself. You can be both no. in it and watching it. And it mm-hmm. ends specifically on that little frame within a frame of the window yeah. of the door of the the room that she's in mm-hmm. where she is gone <laughs> ostensibly yeah. and this is but this is after she has stood back up this is after mm-hmm. we've seen her you know accept Joyce's encouragement affirmation permission however you want to read that mm-hmm. to come back to life and live in Sunnydale I see that coda as an indication of Buffy's inner life. She's mm-hmm. that is her mind. We're in her mind with her, but she's leaving that behind. Mm-hmm. This is her recovery. And recovery is a deceiving word. It makes it sound like yeah. you're getting something back. Like uh-huh. you're somehow undoing the harmful experience or its effects. But that's not how it works. You can't go back in time. You don't recover in the sense of becoming someone who never had the experience you had. Mm-hmm. You will always be a person who experienced the pain and trauma that you experienced. And that's okay. You can have that distress be part of your past. And you can leave the distress behind and move forward, secure in the knowledge of the world of strength in your heart. Oh, my God, Noelle. Oh, my God. That's so beautifully expressed. I love that so much. Well, now you saying that is my favorite part. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it ties into your favorite part. I think, Mm -hmm. honestly, honestly, I think that that coda is an affirmation of what you have in the notes as your favorite part. Yeah. Well, my favorite part is Buffy's choice. When she finds her strength Mm -hmm. and she comes back to her friends, she returns. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And leaves all of that behind. I love that. I think the coda says yes to that Mm -hmm. instead of saying no to that. I don't think it I don't think it negates or undermines her Mm -hmm. choosing to come back to her friends. I think it says yes. I think it says Mm -hmm. this is over. We lost her. We lost this distressed part of Buffy who who does want to retreat to her parents' home, right? Because mm-hmm. that's the promise. That's the promise of leaving Sunnydale, of letting the demon kill her friends, right? Is mm-hmm. you're, here's your mother and father. They love you. There's no sister. You're their one and only. It's just you. You don't have to deal with any of these difficult things in your life. You can just be taken care of. And I think that's a part of all of us. Mm-hmm. in a way um and you can be scared <laughs> you can not want you know like it's okay to want to be taken care of in that way but you're not you, you know you're not doing it on your own you're not on your own and the strength of you is stronger than that that fear so that coda to me is a This is over. This kind of insecurity Mm -hmm. and fear. This specific type (laughs) of insecurity 
and doubt and fear mm -hmm. is done. And we're leaving it here in this little room. And then there's an empty frame. We're not even looking at anything through that window at the end. It's really, it's really over. Oh my God. Well, I can't think of any better way to end this episode than that. That's amazing. All right then. <laughs> If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish, and use the hashtag #StillPretty. This episode of Still Pretty was brought to you by the Chipperish Media Producers, who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Still Pretty is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our January producers. Shelly, Christina, Kristen, Jonathan, Rose, Erica, Alice, Abigail, and Sarah. And this week's special message for our power producers... You didn't tell me it was a glory called Gashmanick. Because I can't sing, look! <laughs> to find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or fall for Willow and stay fallen. We will be back next time with Entropy, the 18th episode of season six. Until then, you've got a world of strength in your heart. I know you do. You just have to find it again. Believe in yourself. Mm -hmm.